The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Good Morning New York. It is Tuesday, January 13th, and I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and we are coming to you live from Blastoff Studios in New York as usual You know, the hottest debate of the moment among real estate insiders is, will the market for top-end luxury real estate finally run out of steam in 2015? More than 6,500 new condominium units below 96th Street in Manhattan are slated to hit the market this year, more than double the amount of the inventory from last year. Inventory for new apartments in about 100 buildings is on pace to rise to a seven-year high, the New York Times has recently reported. In 2007, for example, 8,052 new new units were listed for sale. Many of the new units coming on will be concentrated along Billionaire's Row near or on West 57th Street. About 2,500 units in 59 buildings hit the market in 2014. So this is a clear uptick, and many questions are being raised as to what the dynamic will be and how the residential housing market will look in 2015 this year. My guest today is Jeff Appel, a record-setting sales professional and real estate industry-leading executive who is widely recognized as a major figure in New York City real estate. Most recently, Jeff brought unparalleled leadership to his role as president and COO of Town Residential. Now, as an independent industry expert, consultant, and spokesperson, Jeff is able to share his knowledge and strategies with all of us. Jeff is no stranger also to the media. He was the host, a co-host of the popular WPIX real estate and lifestyle television show, Metro Residential, uh, a few years ago. It's my pleasure to welcome Jeff to the program this morning to help us understand what 2015 is going to look like. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Vince. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So the let's start, get right into it. The average sale price in Manhattan reached an all-time high of $1.7 million in 2014, driven mostly by new development closings and tight inventory in the resale market. Uh, This according to Douglas Elliman's fourth quarter sales report. The report also said the fourth quarter had the second highest sales volume in 25 years with 2718 closed sales. The highest was in 2013 with 3297 closed sales. Howard Lorber also went on record, chairman of uh, Douglas Elliman, saying he's very optimistic about the market this year, and his quote was, the numbers are going to be astronomical in 2015. So let's break this down a bit. In your opinion, your expert opinion, what is the market going to do in 2015? Well, I think that the numbers are indeed going to be astronomical in in, uh, 2015, but we have to look at what's carrying over from 2014 and closing in 2015 and what's going into contract. Uh, you have to break it down, but I think it's good news in, in, in both instances. So um, we have to get some facts straight before we really look at the market. You know, a lot of people say, well, the market's overheated. There's way too much inventory. You know, how many billionaires are there? So let's start with that. How many billionaires are there? There are roughly 1,800 billionaires. So 
1800 that's billion, a lot that is a lot we're up from about 900 billionaires in 2009 mm-hmm. so 1800 billionaires is a lot but now let's look at what a millionaire is do you have any idea how many millionaires there are uh, hundreds of thousands probably actually there's a little over 12 million millionaires 12 million. there's a little over 12 million millionaires wow. and millionaires come in a lot of different shapes and sizes so a millionaire is somebody who has a million dollars and a millionaire is somebody who has 999 million dollars mm. so when we talk about billionaires row we're not really talking about billionaires row we're talking about ultra wealthy and in the ultra wealthy space if you figure uh, there's 12 million, roughly a little bit more actually than 12 million millionaires. There's going to be a whole bunch of them sort of at the bottom of that group of people. There's going to be a few people in the middle and there's going to be a big concentration on top. So I think that most brokers in New York City would be very happy to take uh, someone with a net worth of $775 million into a billionaire's row building. So I actually think that uh, – uh, if you put that in context with the fact that 75% of New York's market is rentals, 75% of what's available to, for sale is co-ops, and that 25% of 25% is what is condominiums, and in that 25 of 25%, roughly 3% of that trade a year, uh, and you add 6,500 <clears throat> more units to that, we've got a pretty small number of units for sale, and we've got a lot of people with a lot of money all over the world who, for any number of reasons – which could be geopolitical, which could be uh, aspirational, want to park money in New York City. So in my view, uh, what we really have is a product issue uh, going forward. We don't have a demand issue at all. We're going to talk a little bit about that as we as we move through and also some of the pricing pressures that some – your average millionaire would like to buy an apartment or someone close to that would like to buy an apartment but can't because of these Uber – Pricing points that we talked that you mentioned a little while ago, but for example, last year's residential market got most of its buzz from developers racing to build luxury condos. But it was eye-popping co-op sales last year that really kind of shattered records in 2014. Why all of a sudden are co-ops, you know, sort of uh, taking over from some of these higher-priced um, apartments? For example, you know, in, well, in, in the old days, I call it the old days. It's not that hard, not that easy, rather. To get investor types in co-ops, why why are we seeing these eighty and ninety and seventy one million dollar co-ops and being bought by investor types? Okay, so I think that that that's actually pretty easy to figure out. Um, if you go outside a market like New York and and you're working with a, a, a luxury buyer, and that buyer has let's say eight to ten million dollars to spend, let's just take it down to the eight to ten or, or the ten to twenty twenty <clears throat> million. Let's say you had twenty million dollars to spend. Do you have any idea what you get for $20 million? Um, you, you get a, uh, I mean, you get a king's palace yeah. with every conceivable amenity known to man. Now, you take that buyer who says, I want that same level of quality. I want that same distinction. I want that trophy property in New York City. And now you're looking at a $50 million-plus property, mm-hmm. at least, at least. So the reason we saw those co-op sales are these are all – uh, iconic trophy properties that are trading. These are the best of the best Correct. in the co-op market, uh, largely concentrated on the Upper East Side, largely in storied buildings by very famous architects with incredible rarefied spaces. Um, when you juxtapose that type of and, – and by the way, those are almost all pre-war buildings. Those are almost all a period. They, they may have been renovated and, and, and almost all of them were uber-renovated. But it's a certain type of buyer that's looking for a, a level of quality 
and, uh, and, and prestige that those buildings delivered. Now, what we're seeing being built in the new development space in, in the Midtown uh, Upper East Side is starting to rival that. That's a different buyer, again, than the downtown buyer. The downtown buyer, which is really where all the action is really, really happening, mm-hmm. which is downtown and in some parts of Brooklyn. So when we see buildings like 157, I mean, 157 uh, uh, shattered records, but it wasn't so soon before that that 15 Central Park West had shattered records. And it wasn't soon before that that the Time Warner Center shattered records. Right. And it wasn't soon before that that another building did. So really, this is about quality. And what we see coming on the market and what's slated to come on the market literally uh, gets gives me goosebumps. It's such exciting inventory. So um, I think that we're going to start to see huge demand for these projects. And, and uh, I don't think – I think, it, again, this has been an issue of quality, not quantity. I agree with you about the exciting uh, product coming on the market. But let me just go back to the co-op situation for one more minute. Um, so traditionally the co-op boards – you know, very difficult to get past, especially in some of these buildings that we're talking about on Park Avenue, on Fifth Avenue, on Central Park West, whatever. Why, you know, why are they allowing, you know, billionaires and, and people from foreign lands potentially or, or big corporate executives to buy into these these uh, apartments, get past the board when traditionally they didn't want this type of person in there? Are they intoxicated by the higher prices now that the condo market has driven up? to the sky? I mean, are they looking at their future sales, for, for example, or are they just relaxing their, their stringent policies? You know, I think that New York is, uh, is like everywhere else. Um, uh, the, the values are changing in our city. So I think that there was a time when you say back in the old days, now you and I are both way too young to go back to the old days. <laughs> but when you say back <laughs> in, you, the, in the old days, um, you know, there were – it was, it was um, you know, I used to teach this to brokers. It, it was a question of um, character in a, to a large degree. So you not only had to qualify based on your financials, so it was, it was quality of character. And I think that still matters. But I also think the sensibilities on these boards, these are younger and younger people coming into these buildings. And right. really what they're looking for is they're looking for security because they, um, they're more active than they used to be. Um, and they're more involved in the finances and the operations of these buildings. And in the end, what you really want to know is if your roof blows out and you have to raise five and a half million dollars, when you tap each of your cooperators and you ask them for a check for three hundred and eighteen thousand dollars, they're going to pay you. Right. And so I think that that uh, to a large degree, those values have changed. And so now boards really are looking for highly qualified candidates in the way of being financially able. Uh, sustainable and and uh, uh, able to to carry the the load. So, it's your opinion that, and, and certainly is my opinion that the the tide seems to be turning based on the stuff that you've just mentioned. Slowly, 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 but, but still, but still moving in, in a direction that you know. Yeah, moving in the right direction. Most people wouldn't be uh, like human about. beings in general. <laughs> moving in the right direction. We're not done yet. And we're we're yeah, not yeah, done yeah. yet. It's going to be interesting, though, in, in my process. opinion. To see what 2015 um, actually does bring to the table from the, the co-op perspective. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, new developments and, and uh, condos for sure. But uh, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. and We're talking to Jeff Appel, and we're going to talk about where the market is going in 2015. So... Jeff, as 2014 wound down, a curious trend emerged among real estate developers. Even amid a new development sales boom, several top developers developers voiced concern about the ultra-high segment of the market. Combined with expectations for an influx of new condos that will come online in, in 2015 this year, the developers' anxiety made waves among marketers and brokers. What is their concern? Uh, they had the wrong product in the wrong place at the wrong price. Uh, you know, uh, there is there is some basic fundamentals of the market. I mean, you have to deliver the right product. It's got to be the right size. It's got to be in the right place. It has to have the right host of amenities. And it's got to be at the right price. So for the developers that were in the ground aspirationally <clears throat> building, thinking there was no top to the market and they could sell anything at any any price. And, you know, I I, uh, I think about meetings that I had with developers uh, last year uh, on sites that I felt could would would be challenged to approach this three three thousand to thirty five hundred dollar price point, um, I think I I think that they sobered up and they realized that um, where the sales are happening, they're happening for a reason. The buyers are looking for a certain type of product, and um, the developers either didn't have the ability to upgrade and deliver, or they had the wrong location to deliver it. So I think uh, that's good news, by the way, I think for us, because I think that we're going to see <coughs> more segmentation of the market, which is, which is, I think, something that we sorely need. And I know we're going to talk more about that. But yeah. um, I think that uh, that is just a natural process of maturing in their understanding of what you need to deliver in the market. So how did they get it so wrong? Because I, I, I absolutely agree with your, your observation here. But so how did they get it so wrong? How did they come out with the wrong product or – Better said, not the right product for everybody out there. Is it a is it a really a pricing thing, or is it just the the uh, types of amenities? Or were they only focusing on the uber wealthy, or the what I think just on on the foreign buyer because everybody wanted to sell big ticket items fast and to people who could afford it? Is that where they really missed the mark? You know, first of all, this market has come so far in such a short period of time as far as price point goes and and price per square foot. You know, I think that. When, I don't think they got it wrong. I think that they learned 
uh, quickly. Um, they made assumptions going in. They used past precedent as a way to sort of project and impute where they thought that they could be. And then they saw what, what worked and what was selling and what was languishing. Correct. And <clears throat> when you see that, I mean, you either – you could go into total denial and say that what I have is different and special. And I know that you might encounter that sometimes in resale market. Absolutely. Right, where sellers say, but this purple fabric that's on my wall cost me $4,000 a square foot. And the answer is yes, but you're the only person in the world that would pay that much for it. And who would like it. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> so, so you can go into denial or you can meet the market. And what I've learned, if I've learned anything about developers, um, uh, if developers don't, don't become conscious quickly – their banking partners or their capital partners will. And that whole – that's a whole other dynamic that's I think really matured in the last five to seven years. Capital partners are now much more involved in the process and um, and they're much more astute about the market. As they should be. So while there are a number of buyers who can afford these prices or the, the Uber prices, it's not the kind of inventory that sells every day or so quickly as we know. But so how is this pricing pressure – how is this pricing scheme going to put pressure on the resale market for the rest of the buyers that are out there? I mean it really is a price pressured situation here for oh, boy, I get excited everybody who wants this. to buy. No, it's great news. It's great news because everybody's got to end up somewhere, Vince. Correct. Right. So that means that there's a huge opportunity. Uh, there's a huge opportunity to learn more about the, the the ancillary markets in New York City, which include several neighborhoods in, in um, Queens, several neighborhoods in the Bronx, several neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Um, and I think that there is a huge opportunity for agents to retool and to um, – uh, to represent these buyers who are very frustrated, who need help. I mean, you know, you and I have both worked with with clients that basically said, you know, I don't really need you. I really right. don't. I can do this myself. Correct. Um, Far too many of them. That's correct. But uh, this pressure is going to create um, value uh, for agents and agents are going to be able to be of greater service. Now, it does require that agents retool and it requires that agents learn more about the markets where these opportunities to to own exist. I mean, you know, I I think for the first time about two weeks ago, I heard uh, a broker in Manhattan say that they were working with a client on Staten Island. I mean, that's wow, that's a big deal. And uh, by the way, you know, I've been to Staten Island a lot, of, many, many, many times, and there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful housing inventory there, as there is almost everywhere else. And if we in New York could just get past our bias exactly. that the only thing that exists is on our island, um, there's a huge opportunity out there. I just recently read in some research I was doing for the show um, <clears throat> coming up that City Island in the Bronx mm. is also now a very hot market. Neighborhood place. of the year. Neighborhood of the year, exactly. So, I mean, go figure. But along those lines, you know, there seems to be a big opportunity for brokers, as you say, servicing the part of the marketplace that is under price pressure, how do they get the market stimulated and moving? And aren't sellers, see, here's my my concern. This is what I continue to see in my personal business. But aren't sellers still intoxicated by the skewed large asking prices and they still want these prices? So even if we're trying to correct things and, 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 and you know, uh, bring prices to where, you know, normal people can purchase, what do we do with this? Because there are sellers who say no. Well, first know. of all, we can't correct anything. And the market, the market actually, we can't change uh, the market forces. <clears throat> and um, uh, sellers, unless they're under pressure or unless they're in a clearly declining market, right. are always aspirational as far as their price. And um, by the way, thank goodness for that because that's what moves our market forward. So again, it's about what you've got to sell. And I think that the frustration um, for us 
in in the industry is is educating our sellers accurately whether they do indeed look the market breaks down to only two segments there's only two value or scarcity mm. so you're one or the other you've either got something that people want and they'll pay up and maybe even pay retail plus for or you've got something where they have to see the value and that means that you've got to peg yourself to the market the disconnect is um i think there's a you know there's more agents than there are sales in right. new york by that margin is widening and widening. I mean, it's, it's by by big margin, thousands. So I think that sometimes we want the work so desperately, we don't do our job. And our job is to educate the seller, to help the seller come up with what the right price is. And, um, you know, I live with a broker. I put my head down every night. And hear the um, tales of woe. I wake up with it. I sleep with it. It's all I got. <laughs> so the the bottom line is the bottom line is you know I hear the same stories and these stories are uh, he's being unreasonable he's being this he's being yeah. that she's being this way she's being that way I don't understand ba ba da ba ba da ba and I always say the same thing you're not doing your job yeah. because your job is to help them gain clarity. So in general, how has this pricing pressure and the change in new development really affected the way people are living in New York City today? Because well, some people are doing great. Well, some people are doing really great. But it, isn't it really the tale of two cities, though? I mean, you've got the, the, the very luxurious, you know, New York resident here, and then you've got the person over here trying to get to that luxurious lifestyle. You know what, Vince? And it's a struggle. We all walk the same streets in New yeah. York. We all eat in, in more or less the same places. We all go to the same drugstore. We all, we all live our lives in New York City a certain way. And the truth is... As with anything else, look, uh, I can I equate it to cars. Uh, I love cars, and um, the truth is, you can get from one place to another in just about the same comfort in a, a twelve thousand dollar car as you can in a million dollar car. Um, so, is it a tale of two cities? Not really. It's it's um, it's an example of um, we live in a market where. Uh, the 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 world's affluent want to have a stake, and the world's affluent would be living in these trappings and luxurious residences, whether it's here in New York or somewhere or else. And the truth is, is that if you're somebody living in a one bedroom uh, co op uh, in on the on the west side in the '90s or the early uh, or the low hundreds, and you have light, you're living a great life in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, is it a tale of two cities? Uh, it's a tale of, you know, a million cities and it's very unique and individual. But I think that uh, the only thing that changes the quality of life in New York, and we're not going to go down this road because this is truly the rabbit hole, is political policy and um, whether or not we keep the city safe. And I think right. if we keep the city <clears throat> safe, everybody can have a great life in New York. What is your opinion on the affordable housing trend that our current administration here in the city is is moving Fast and furious with. I like it. I think that it's the devil's in the details. So it's, um, you know, the mayor came out, you know, really reaching, sort of trying to reach across to the development community because I, I do think that the development community did not have a party the night he was elected. I, I don't think anybody celebrated. I think they were concerned. Um, but the truth is there's just not – the city doesn't have that much to work with. So there isn't, you know, they've got they got tax breaks, they got pilot programs, they got things that they can exchange. But you know, I, I sat on, I, I watched a panel actually with um, 
Don Peebles. It was uh, Don Peebles, Steve Roth, um, and, and, a, and a few other iconic guys. And, and we went down the row, and I, I had an opportunity to ask a question. And I said, listen, I, I represent 600 salespeople who work with people that make upwards of a million dollars a year, that have you know upwards of a million dollars liquid cash to invest, and they have two kids, and they can't buy anything in New York City. Is there any way you guys can build to this demographic? And we just went down the line and they all said, no, 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 no. Because again, like you said, we were saying earlier, we can't make the market. The market moves where demand takes it. And so the cost of land is too high. The cost of building is too high. And in the end, um, that's, again, an opportunity. We have to change our view of what New York – living in New York City is. And none of that is going to change. I mean the cost of land is only going to get higher and the cost of build is only going to get higher. So we have to adjust – For now. So we have to adjust ourselves accordingly. And as a, a real estate agents and brokers, we have to map to that to our, our customers. So how has this event affected the rental market? How has it affected the rental market? Well, uh, they, they don't have a direct correlation. The rental market, again, is three-quarters of the housing stock in the city, and the rental market is still sitting at a one-and-a-half percent, one-and-three-quarter percent vacancy rate. So the rental market's doing great. Um, again, the rental market has become more mature. And the product is differentiated. So which rental market are we talking about? Are we talking about the luxury high-end rental market, which is doing phenomenal? Absolutely. Or are we talking about the entry-level market, which is doing phenomenal? Or are we talking about the odds and ends and bits and pieces, which are sort of the the tough-to-rent properties? And that is, again, is it a value play or a scarcity play? Same dynamics. Similar. I just recently, just this week, Denise and I are working on a renewal at 15 CPW, $55,000, $57,000 per month, second, third lease with, with this tenant. And I, and I, you know, I sit back and I think, okay, so $57,000 a month, it's a great lease. Buy something. Mm. You know, but so, but I guess they're happy in the apartment. They like the building. They can. I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting to see. I'm waiting for the thing that I want to buy. I go back to saying, you know, what happened to the term? I have to buy. I have to buy. I have to buy. I have to own a piece of the rock here. I mean, that that's a perfect example. It's another show, Vince. It's a, it's a long. That's a long conversation. It certainly is about uh, the American dream. So. We can right, have so that conversation. Unfortunately, but. we're coming close to the end here, and I hate these uh, these time blocks anyway. But you are one of the most prolific industry experts I've met in my years in real estate here. So, you know, my question to you is, and you've done so many things. What's next for Jeff Appel? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to how do you top where I'm you're going to leave here and have I think a, a salt bagel toasted with vegetable <laughs> cream cheese. <laughs> That's Yum. next. Bring one. See, <laughs> send one back to me, please. Thank you. Anyway, um, great to see you. Great to have you on the show. Um, sorry again that we run out of time, but come back to and be talk here. to us again. Thanks, Vince. All right, guys, we're going to take a break. I'll be back in a few minutes. Don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. 
visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. We were just talking to Jeff Appel, um, real estate expert here in New York, about the the um, strategy or, or the, the pace at which the 2015 market is going to go. But, you know, on the heels of that, I wanted to just read you some statistics. For the final quarter of the year, the median sale price was $980,000, the highest since before the financial crisis of 2008. According to a report published by uh, today by Douglas Elliman, the average price for a condo or co-op in the borough of Manhattan in 14 was a million seven one eight. That's a 19 percent jump from the average transaction of a million four four three in 2013. The median sale price also went up, raising to rising to nine hundred and forty thousand from eight fifty five thousand. And for the final quarter of the year, the median sale price was nine hundred eighty, the highest since before the financial crisis, as we said a minute ago. Sales prices for luxury homes also went up. The average sale price for a luxury unit in the fourth quarter was three million one hundred fifty six thousand dollars. That's up seventeen point two percent year over year. The price increase was driven largely by limited availabilities and a higher than average demand according to the report. So how does that stack up against the rest of the country? In Cleveland, for example, God bless Cleveland, the median home <laughs> price for the fourth quarter was 87500 uh, Chicago's median home price was 224500 uh, And finally, in Detroit, the, um, Trulia lists the median home price is $39,000. Isn't that something? That means if you spent the report's Manhattan median in Motown, you could buy 24 houses. <laughs> go out there and do wow. that. Isn't that something? Wow. So, good morning, everybody. Nice to have you with me again. Good uh, morning, Vince Rocco. I'm going to intercede for one second oh, and ask how do. your weekend was. I knew you went away. No, I didn't go away uh, this weekend. It was really? uneventful. Yeah, it was uneventful. I was actually um, dog-sitting for my business partner's little little dog, and so Noodle and uh, Jet had quite, <laughs> quite a busy weekend. And, Jet, and you had a really nice time because you are so happy when the two of them are with you. I needed a bottle of wine, though, yeah. because, it was, you know, at one point they were jumping all over the place and driving me a little crazy, but I love them dearly. Vince, you always need a bottle of wine. Well, mm. no, now I'm fasting. You see, I, I started my master cleanse today. I know. So that, I mean, Congratulations. Yesterday. So um, my weekend was good. Everybody else's was good. Peru, yep. uh, anyway, so we're talking to Peru Brombat from CORE. We're talking to Niall Longwood from Dalian Realty, Rachel Altshuler from Douglas Elliman, Phil Horrigan from LeaseBreak.com. Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential, and Ivy Ray from Blue Realty Group. So everybody is doing well? 100%. Yes, how are you? Very busy, yes. Full effect. Very busy. Well, that's good to know. I mean, so how's, you know, we talked about, we ended the last couple of shows, couple of weeks with um, sort of closing out 2014, projecting 2015. So how, I guess, second week, almost third week into January, how does 2015 look for you guys? Are you seeing some ramp up? Um, I'm looking really forward to it and excited about the deals that are sort of in front of me right now and the way 
seems like the pipeline is building out. So it looks like the a first, my first six months look pretty strong, which is exciting. Yeah, I would agree. I think there's a lot in the pipeline going on, especially with a lot of my agents. We have uh, a lot of things brewing, nothing tangible as of yet, but it just seems very promising. It feels like uh, the quiet before the storm, like the storm's brewing, and I feel as within the next, you know, four weeks, something should be uh, should be taking hold. I'm I'm sort of feeling the same way, quiet before the storm, and I'm trying to put my finger on, you know, you know, because of course, as an agent and and as a broker, you're always anxious for that to start right away. <clears throat> so, what do you think is um, driving? I I feel the the pent up. Something's about to happen, I think, as Jeff said earlier in conversation, it's going to be a very good year, astronomical numbers potentially. But why, I mean, where is this coming from based on where we left 2014? And how quickly do you think we're going to get to where I call, you know, fully ramped up and charged and ready to go? I feel I'm about, mm, I don't know, two, three weeks away from super busy. And I'm kind of like, I can't wait. I think there's a lot happening behind the scenes. And also the weather plays a factor. You know, probably 10, 15 degrees outside. Not, not many people are, are getting out and hitting the pavement right now. So a lot is happening behind the scenes. I've yeah, spoken with a number of buyers, and a lot of them are doing their research right now and mentally retooling because, remember, at the end of last year, all the press and the things we've been reading were talking about record high prices and a lot of things that Jeff had just spoken about. And they really want to get their strategy ready to see what this year is going to bring initially before they really jump in the market. Yeah, Deborah, I agree with Deborah, Jeff. But what are they, what are they actually saying? Also, think? I think because I'm so busy right now is really due to the rental market. November and December were slow, and suddenly everyone wants to rent by January 15th or February 1. So that's definitely keeping me busy right now. Deborah, let me go back me, to you I for a second. Pearl, hold it one second. Pearl, hold on one second. Deborah, let me just go back and ask you, so what are your customers actually saying to you? I mean, you know, so they they sat back a little bit at the end of 14. They're looking to see where the market is going in 15. What are they actually saying to you by way of, you know, their thinking strategy? Well, they're worried that the prices are going to keep going higher. And these are people who have been outbid many times in bidding wars, and they are financially qualified, but they are not all cash. So they want to see what is coming on the market at what price, and they're waiting a little bit to see if things sit on the market. So I think they're going to jump in February or March. They won't give me a date and we talk daily, but that's my feeling. And I also have a few buyers that are either waiting for a bonus, or I had a buyer yesterday that emailed me and said, I may be getting a promotion next month, so I'm going to hold off and wait. Well, of course, the, the infamous bonus season is upon us. Uh, so, Peru, yeah. I'm sorry, I cut you off before. What were you oh, about no, to say? That's fine. Um, basically, I, I, in fact, it was you and Deborah were right where I, where I was going to go, which is um, what I'm sort of seeing is, for me, I don't feel like there was a hard start-stop between 2014 and 2015. It was these buyers who were looking towards the end of last year, like I would say September onwards, who weren't like my, you know, $5 million, have plenty of cash flow sort of buyers, but the ones that were more like in the bread and butter genre of like, you know, between 800000 to $2.5 million. And, um, and those guys um, sort of missed out on some multiple bids and different things. And I think their biggest concern is, you know, as the market keeps moving up further, um, what is going to happen in my price point? So I would rather just stay active continue to look um, seriously and really just move forward as soon as I find anything 
that shows up that I would be interested in. So I really think that that the, the fear of the market continuing to go up and their affordability of what it is that they want becoming more and more obsolete is what is driving them. Interesting commentary because I think, you know, people still say to me, you know, whispers of a buyer's market, whispers of a buyer's market and the sellers, you know, going to have to take a back seat. I'm not quite sure about that. But yet, you know, it's going to be time to tell. But I'm not so sure because I think prices are still going to go up. And as we talked about on the new development side with Jeff a little while ago, you know, these the product is still coming out and there's going to be a lot of it. Ivy, you want to say yeah, something? Yeah, I just, I'm going to ditto everybody and agree that I've heard from almost, you know, all of my close people, almost everybody, and those that are on the market, you know, I do a lot of work down in FIDI. Mm-hmm. Everybody's ready to sell. <clears throat> and everybody in 20 Pine wants to put their property on the market. You know, like, so that's going on. And I have, as you know, I went out the year with a, a soup, you know, an uber high end property with my first unreasonable seller. Mm-hmm. Price wise, and that's what's going on in a lot of the buildings down there. People are mm-hmm. contemplating putting things on the market at outrageous prices. And I learned my lesson. It was the first time I went into something that I felt bad about going into regarding a seller that had, you know, expectations that were really unreasonable. Well, as I said before, so that's, they're still intoxicated by some oh, of these high prices. They're tripping. <clears throat> they're beyond drunk. They're tripping. I mean, you, I mean crazy pricing. So I, I don't quite know what to do with that because I have long-time relationships with a lot of these people as friends. They've been waiting to work with me as their broker, and they're all high. You know. So obviously our, our job is to do that, to bring them into reality by informing them in every possible direction. And, give, and I'm good at that, but the, some people are just – unwilling to, you know, because of what's going down in FIDI and what's going around citywide. And then I also have tremendous compassion. You know, I service all buyers and I have a soft place in my heart for people that want to, that live in New York and are from New York and want to upgrade their property. They've had another child and they're not in the price point that's really popular now and they can't buy. And they're, you know, so they'll sell and their rent, but they've been planning things for years. They just can't, they're, you know, there's no place for them. So I feel for them. And then I've got foreign buyers going, I'm ready. You know, so nothing's happening yet, but everybody's. What, if any, are your plans to look at the foreign market? I mean, on this program, we've talked about for weeks and weeks, and we've had Nikki Field on here, who's the expert uh, in uh, cultivating uh, the Chinese marketplace. What, what, if any, plans do you all have as individual agents and brokers here in, in town to kind of tap into that marketplace? Because, I mean, I, I struggle with that as well, like everybody else does, trying to find ways or hooks into getting many more foreign buyers to to the table because even as Jeff said earlier in conversation, you know, that's really where, you know, the, the comfort level is with some of these pricing, prices. And, you know, um, for a lot of political reasons, you know, it's safer to park your money here. So are we doing a good enough job finding these foreign buyers? I mean, every time I pick up, you know, a trade rag or a newspaper article, it's it's the hot topic of the day yet again. What are we all doing about that? Anything? Uh, for me personally, it's my strongest growth set segment for this year. That's where most of my goals in terms of something that I'm doing differently lies. Um, I think that, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have sort of a natural in. Um, I think I'm one of like maybe, I, I don't quote me on this, but I would say like three or five, three to five Indian brokers uh, that I know of in the city. And so that sort of creates a natural market for me um, internationally to sort of forge relationships and really tap into that, you know, that group of people who, even in this country, Indians are the highest per per capita income. So, you know, even just 
using my relationships here as a springboard to the foreign relationships um, internationally everywhere, Singapore, Dubai, London, um, and obviously Bombay, Delhi, um, is sort of where I've really started focusing energy. So I'm sort of working from a natural market standpoint. Um, You know, there are a lot of Indian players coming into the market, even on, you know, the development end of making, um, you know, larger investments. So it's an interesting time that, you know, that this segment is sort of starting to show up in the market space. And so I'm sort of excited about seeing how that works out in 2015. Anybody else? We've got about a minute left of this segment yeah. on foreign I think buyers. In addition, to, in addition to international buyers, we have a lot of national buyers, people from out of the New York area Correct. who are Correct. really coming in. And I think that segment's been ignored Good by point. the press because international are much more exciting and glittery. Well, I totally agree with that, but but I also agree that there's a lot of national people out there wanting to buy in New York City for the same reasons that everybody else wants to. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, we have to uh, go for a second. We are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back with the panel, and I just wanted to ask a question. So, you know, in all of our running around town, buying and selling and renting uh, apartments for our clients, new or old, uh, the question come, sometimes comes up, when should I start looking for a rental? When should I start looking for a rental apartment? Now, here, you have a signed contract to sell your co-op, and you have a closing date on or about, you know, six weeks from now. The buyers still have to finalize their financing, which is a decent amount of the purchase price, and pass the board. Pass the board. Here we go. So when should you start looking for a rental that you're going to live in once you actually close on your co-op? This is a huge issue for most of us, most of the time, because it's always about timing, and timing in this business is not always so easy. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take that. 
first of all, you definitely shouldn't sign leases until the the board approve the buyer. You know, I mean, there's just there's just no question about that, and people do unfortunately do that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of when you could start looking, I mean, you could always look early. You know, the thing about the Manhattan market, it does the rental market, it does move pretty quickly. So, worst case, if you had to find an apartment with two weeks, you can do it. But there's no reason to you know, you, you no reason why you can't start looking a month before that board interview or what have you. You know, get get used to the market, know what prices are going for, have a have a feeling of you know, um, what's renting in your particular market segment, but do not sign leases and hand over checks until board, your board So let's approved. go back to timing for a minute. So <clears throat> good advice. So let's go back to timing. So for example, I sign a contract and my broker tells me I have to wait a little bit. How long does it take a renter to find a place? Because I think that's that's most people's angst. I don't know how long it's going to take me. Well, there, there are hundreds of apartments out there that I need to look for, et cetera. I mean, What's it, the timing? It, it, the thing I, I, I often tell buyers is, look, we'll start looking as soon as we can. But just so you know, the market does move fast. You could find an apartment in a day. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing about Manhattan is you can find a rental, not a sale. That's very difficult to mm-hmm. do. But a rental apartment, if you had to, obviously, you never wanted to come to that. But when you at least tell a client this, it, it puts them at ease a little bit. They don't have to start looking two months out. Um, and of course, I think the ideal time usually is about a month before, you know, roughly a few weeks before. Um, but yeah, you, you definitely can find something in a few days. And the reason for that is a lot of the landlords know things go very quickly. So they often don't put them on the market often until they're emptied out, all ready to go. And the landlord often wants a deal that day mm-hmm. and you can get a better price mm-hmm. if you're willing to sign a lease for that day. So those that do wait for the last minute sometimes can get some of the better deals. Let me ask a question of the panel here about post-closing possession. What, how do we feel about that? You're, you're nervous, you don't know what to do, you're closing and you ask the new buyer who's buying your co-op to stay in your unit for two weeks, 30 days, whatever. I know attorneys and sometimes, you know, brokers, you know, jump out of their shoes over this. But what is the feeling on post-closing possession? Because it's a, it's a tricky one. I've had a kill It really deals. depends on the circumstances. Yeah, and does. 99% <clears throat> of sellers' attorneys really hate it because you're very afraid that – I'm sorry, buyers' attorneys hate it because well, you're really too. afraid that the seller is not going to vacate. What if they don't find that place? What if this happens? What if – but if it's only a few days, if it's a week, many times it'll work, even two weeks. I've done up to two weeks, and once I could not get people to agree on either side, so I even offered to have a family stay with me for a week just Whoa. to get it together. You get a gold star, Deborah. I don't think I'd even do that. <laughs> oh my God. Good Lord. All right. Well, that's okay. Um, just real quick on that. Uh, yeah. one, one piece of advice that I would say is when you're working with, uh, say you're a seller and you need post-closing possession, you want, in other words, you want to stay in, in the apartment a week or two after the fact, try to negotiate that before the contract's signed. That's so great. what happens often in a crazy market like this where there's several offers, you go to the buyers and you say, listen, uh, the seller likes your offer, but there are some other ones that the seller also likes. Would you be willing to do a post-closing possession? Negotiate that at that point. And this way it creates a lot less problems down the road. And just uh, just to echo what Deborah was saying, uh, basically there's a very different distinction in terms of regulation and rights of the person who owns the space if somebody is staying in the space for less than 30 days or more than 30 days. So under 30 days is always going to be the easier negotiation from a liability point of view. Even attorneys are going to be better with that. Um, it is when it goes over a 30-day agreement 
uh, that actually the person who is staying in the property ends up having more rights than the person. Well, not more rights, but but the but the rights mm-hmm. tend to be such that. Uh, the person can actually sort of stay there for much longer and it becomes a much longer procedure to try to remove the person from the premises. Yeah, it, it, oh, it's yes, a major the rule issue. just reminded me, and this is very, very important with co-ops, is that many co-ops will not allow a post-closing possession because they see it as a sublet. And many times you cannot sublet until you've lived there for two years. And some buildings are getting very tough on this because of the rise of Airbnb. That's another whole story. That's another whole show. Yes, but yes, anyway, I just recently <laughs> had a situation where we took a listing for a two-bedroom apartment. I think it's going to go up for a million eight twenty-five, and uh, it's not even up on the boards yet. And we rented an apartment to this seller just yesterday. He's going to sign the leases today, and we've said, "Listen, <laughs> we have to sell the apartment. Let's at least." But you know, angst and anxiousness, and no, 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 I got to find something. I got to find something. Signed a lease, just as you warned not to do, and uh, Phil, and so here we are. Now the pressure on the brokers are to get this place sold in, in a flash because you know, even though the, 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 the seller says, oh, no, 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 everything is fine, you know, we'll sell the place, blah, blah, three months go by and it's not sold, guess who gets, you know, pressure. Anyway, let's talk about confessions of a first-time seller. So you're on the market for three months, four months. Typically, what does that mean? Price is too high. It's not priced correctly. Seller gets crazy. Brokers get anxious. You know, a high asking price won't get you top dollar. Why? Won't get, won't get you the, the, the asking price. Won't, it certainly won't get you even more than that. Why? If, it, if it's a tight or competitive market, if yeah. you price it lower, it's going to drive more demand to the, to the property. If you price it high, people aren't even going to show up to the open house because they think that the seller is unrealistic in the first mm-hmm. place. The more options that you have and if you price it lower, that more drive, the more that you're able to drive traffic to the property, the higher likelihood that you're going to drive a bidding war and get the price higher. Here in New York City, you know, we say in, in a competitive marketplace, whatever, it's not always wise to take the highest bid. So, again, we're talking from a, a, a confessions of a first-time seller. They've never sold before. They're figuring all this stuff out after or as they're going through the process. Why not take the highest bid? Everybody wants the most money they can get. What's wrong with taking the highest bid or the highest offer? I think, I think it, it really matters the wherewithal of the, the purchasing power of the buyer, the prospective buyer. Do they have the right credit? Is the DTI correct? Um, do they have the right income? Are they mm-hmm. right for this co-op? Mm-hmm. You know, compared to the boards, some some boards 1, don't, don't like flashy people walking in with Rolexes and oh, I'm going to do this. And I I'm can't go in with that. a green tie at my board interview. <laughs> Vince, you can oh, go in on. with anything yeah. you want. You'll <laughs> There's be all also right, the risk me. of uh, under appraisal. So um, well, well, I actually had two two properties get under appraised. Uh, last year, we made it work. We got creative with the banks. We had to order a second appraisal. But if you go too high, you just have to make sure that the buyer is putting enough down uh, more than the 20% or 30% and has the money to cover if it doesn't appraise. Here's one. The buyer's broker can make or break a deal. The buyer's broker can make or break a deal. You're the listing agent. You have a seller that's getting very anxious and for all the reasons that we just talked about, but then here comes a buyer's broker who can potentially, you know, clobber the deal. What's that about? And why? Oh, my God. That's such an easy thing to have take place. 
you've got somebody that it, you know, insists on talking by phone. I was reading something and saw this line and this has happened to me before and then they never answer their phone. You've got somebody who doesn't take your strong recommendation to get an attorney that's done a lot of closings in whatever building, if the building is, you know, historically problematic or has some financial issues and they don't follow suit on that. You've got somebody that up front, you know, when you're talking about advising your seller as to which buyer to consider to accept an offer from, often the broker on that side is where I make a good portion of my decision because they can easily make or break a deal. You know, and then if they ill-advise and if there's issues that come up and they're just not clean and communicative and and reasonable and, well, it and goes don't back to what Niall well. said too. You know, if they don't present a, a board passable uh, buyer or candidate, you know, and it's really their responsibility, our responsibility as agents, to make sure that when we put something forward, that we we feel confident that they're going to get past that board yep. or past the condo board, whatever. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, especially with less experienced agents, that doesn't happen because they don't necessarily know what they're looking for. I was having a little bit of a training session with some of my newer agents yesterday, and I was preaching about the financial statement, the revenue financial statement, because if you start working with a buyer and you don't know what they can afford, what they have, what their assets and liabilities are, how could you intelligently guide them through the buy process? Because everybody says, oh, I can get a mortgage. Oh, I can get financing. I can do this, and I can buy a million-dollar apartment because I have you know, X amount of dollars in the bank, but – if you're looking at a co-op and you have to put $200,000 down on a co-op and all you have is $200,000, you're going to walk around saying, hey, I can afford to do that. Well, where's mm-hmm. the cash left over? Oh, I never thought about that, right? So I tell the new agents, and I'm sure you do, Niall, that yep. you have to look at these financial statements and really pull them apart and understand exactly what's on both mm-hmm. sides of the, the fence here. Assets, liabilities, you know, credit scores, uh, what else? Uh Credit card debt. I mean, I had somebody with forty or fifty thousand dollars in credit card debt, but said, "Oh, but I have a lot of money in the bank." Well, then pay off the credit card yeah. debt. <laughs> also, student mm-hmm. loans. Seriously, when you have doctors or lawyers, they have out like crazy student uh, loan debt, which was really another, hurts their mm-hmm. their net worth. That was another big one that came up, and that was really unbelievable. All right, seven reasons a broker will refuse to sell your apartment. The seller is sticking to an unrealistic price. We talk about this almost every week. Price is too high, not going to happen. Objecting to the sales process. The seller doesn't understand the sales process because you haven't explained to them Mm -hmm. what that sales process is. We did a whole half a show on that. You know, the seller is haggling too hard on the commission. We just sit back and say, you know what? I'm going to work my butt off to get this apartment sold. I'm worth 6%, 5%, whatever. And you come to an impasse because they don't want to pay. And they'll fight and argue back and forth with that. Living in a problematic apartment. What's a problematic apartment? It shows like crap. Uh, it needs a paint job. There's there's leaky ceilings, whatever. Fix the place. Show it well. We've done shows on just that. Uh, Kathy Hobbs was actually on the show talking about staging and, and getting an apartment ready to present to the marketplace. Or you're living in a problematic building and a broker says, listen, you know, this building has a reputation of financial issues, of all kinds of problems. It's going to be a difficult potential sell here. Seller, <clears throat> here's a good one. Seller is not actually wanting to sell. Oh. Wow. Isn't that a big one? That's a biggie. They say they want to sell. They call you in. They have a parade of brokers coming in to be interviewed. And all of a sudden they say, well, you know, I'm not really quite sure. Guess what? Ain't going to happen. Or being the wrong kind of crazy. Sellers can be crazy. So you've got to find out what side of crazy they're on and then relate to that, right? Because there's a whole bunch That's of that That's a good going. one. Yeah. Or say no. Or say no. Oh. Well, the end of it is the end of it is you're going to say no. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. 
We are out of time as usual. We need a two-hour show. Thank you, Niall. <laughs> that is Good Morning New York for this week. We are back next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific time live uh, here on Voice America. You could always catch the show later in the day on podcast. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining me, and I will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.